So at the heart of this workshop is really an effort to draw upon the wisdom of Catholic social tradition and try to translate and apply it to modern day circumstances. And for us, in the context of this workshop, that means applying it to our investment decision making and activities. Um, so first, we wanted to just offer a bit of history on the emergence of Catholic social teaching. CST, as we call it, recognizes that the economy is essentially a human construct. Um, and the most fundamental laws governing it are moral laws. Uh, I think it's interesting to contemplate the ways that CST emerged amidst the great upheaval of the Industrial Revolution. At that time, people were flooding into cities. They were leaving sort of their old ways of, of crafting and gilding to join these kind of anonymous factory jobs. And the benefits of technological progress were accruing to very few people. And many people were actually treated very poorly within these factory jobs. They worked long hours, they had low pay, it was unsafe conditions. So it was actually in the midst of that upheaval, um, social and economic upheaval that Pope Leo XIII wrote an encyclical called Rerum Novarum, which is translated to on new things. And it basically contemplated the ways that the industrial revolution and its um, upheavals were really kind of begging new moral questions to be answered, that questions that govern the economy and society that was suffering so much from these growing inequalities and injustices. So we want to really hone in on Baram Navarum because we think what Pope Leo did was so interesting. He really applied of ancient moral principles that were rooted in scripture and tradition to new circumstances of the day. And he called for just relationships between rich and poor, between capital and labor, between the powerful and the oppressed. Flash forward to today, and some might call Pope Francis's Laudato Si as the kind of latter day Rerum Navarum. Um, he uses in, in Laudato Si this See, Judge, Act methodology, which is meant to kind of provide a moral diagnosis of the great social and environmental crises that threaten our ability to support human and planetary flourishing today. And in that, as many of you might be familiar, he calls on us to care for our common home. Similarly, in Fratelli Tutti, he calls our attention to this lack of a sense of global community, a united and common purpose, given the prevalence of individualism in this technocratic paradigm that um, many of us are reading about in Let Us Dream. So over time, the church published a number of social encyclicals and documents that have really shaped this tradition of Catholic social thought. And we're not going to go into depth on the principles here today, we pointed you to a number of other resources, including Anna Rowlands and others that we think you can listen to to really dive into these principles. But just one quick note that historical context really matters as you grapple with these documents, with these encyclicals. They're always meant to be in dialogue with the world around them. The kind of social and economic conditions and the events of our world today really should shape our view of these documents and the ways that they offer this moral reflection on the current economic reality. We'll skip to the next slide. So drawing on our kind of practical knowledge, our diverse uh, fields of expertise, we're always really, I think, engaging as people who are drawing upon Catholic social thought in this question of how we are accountable to the common good. And we think that this means being accountable to our own consciences and cultivating a moral center. So from rooted in the Catholic tradition, we don't necessarily believe that our individual conscience ever exists in a vacuum. Um, Thomas Aquinas taught that 
It is the application of our knowledge to particular cases and problems. So it's this active wrestling in the world. And we think that we each have this obligation or Catholic tradition helps us understand that we each have this obligation to form our consciences rightly by learning the moral principles that can guide them. Um, in secular society, this is a responsibility that each of us bears in the world today that many people are calling attention to. Uh, in her recent book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Jacqueline Novogratz, the founder of Acumen, kind of a pioneer in impact investing, calls us to commit to, quote, a daily choice to serve others, not simply benefit ourselves. And it's hard, but we are really compelled by what she shares, that change is possible. And it's because large-scale change is possible that I've come to see it as a responsibility to be a part of that change. This is what, what we want to note is that this is a process of continual conversion. Um, animated by the vision of St. Francis of Assisi and Laudato Si, Pope Francis really sort of invites us to this, um, to engage in this personal transformation, what he calls an ecological conversion. Um, it's not just about personal conversion at the same time, it's also about institutional transformation and transformation of the political and economic structures that we're a part of. Jump ahead. So this, what we want to dive into um, here is this application of these principles. So as we're wrestling, as we're forming our own consciences, as we're cultivating this moral center, how are we showing up in the world today that is in dialogue with the, the sort of biggest challenges of our time? The spiritual wisdom and the lineage of our tradition really has a role to play in kind of clarifying um, the moral purposes that we think must guide the economy. So one application or embodiment of these principles, um, we look to describe here in the next three slides, which are also brought to you from Morgan Simon and Transform Finance, chapter six, seven, eight of Real Impact. And we've adapted and applied them further to case studies in our own exact example of investments um, we have made and been a part of and folks in our workshop have been a part of. Um, so the first principle is add more value than you take. It's the kind of centerpiece for non-extractive finance. So the investments must yield a higher return for the target community, the beneficiaries, whether it's the entrepreneurs, the workers, the surrounding community, than it does for the investor. And to us, this is a true embodiment of reciprocity and solidarity. It really has a structured commitment into how you make your investment that the returns must be higher for the target community. Um, and that's, we, we are struck by how different that is because investors tend to always have the highest returns. Um, and that's part of what we pride ourselves in. It's part of how we structured our business is to give capital um, that privilege. Um, in non-extractive finance, the design is to grow wealth for the target group. And this is where a lot of impact investing has been um, very good, but in some cases, the impact measurement hasn't been defined by the key beneficiary community. And so non-extractive finance really engages them in that community. And Seed Commons is one example, um, we grew out of the working world, and some of the leaders in this field in the United States. <clears throat> As we think about engaging communities in design, governance, and ownership, um, there, there's a few examples that were on my previous slide there, the industrial commons, um, Oberon, these are all examples of enterprises that embody these principles. The core piece here is to recognize the power dynamics that exist and to be able to embody um, dignity, we have to be in relationship with the community members and leaders that we're seeking to be um, in dialogue with around the enterprises we're investing in. So to express this authentic option for the poor, we have to follow the lead of the people that are most gonna be affected by this business. Now. 
um, Morgan writes about direct cacao in uh, a Latin American example that she invested in her community and how they went about this process of engaging the community members in the design of the business and then the governance in an ongoing way and then also benefiting um, long-term. So the whole idea is that we need insight from social movements, community members to be able to both have the social impact we're desiring, to have the mission actualization we're looking for, but also to minimize, you know, financial risk and minimize impact risk. If we're really seeking a livable future here, these other stakeholders need to be involved in the process. Cooperative models, employee ownership, steward ownership models, trusts that kind of structure an integral ecology ethic as the central purpose that all governance flows up to a purpose trust, which is to regenerate the earth, regenerate the land, regenerate the soil, communities to heal through a gift economy. These are things that you can structure into a purpose trust and that have been structured in a purpose trust that have existed in Northern Europe, um, whether it's Bosch or Ikea, others, there's large examples of, of these existing today or co-op models, the, the trillions of dollars in agriculture, credit marketing co-ops, um, credit unions, rural electric co-ops or an employee-owned business and more than 2000 ESOPs in existence today, millions of workers that have built meaningful retirements for their families through employee ownership structures. And finally, humility is needed here, right? What's the posture we bring? What's the empathy we bring to be able to maximize participation in decision-making, which is how Rollins, Anna Rollins defines subsidiarity. It requires us to kind of use our social education as people that have been brought up in faith traditions and wisdom traditions. How do we listen? How do we not do for others what they can do for themselves? Um, what do the community members want? Is it their own autonomy and sovereignty? I think in light of the signs of the times, we've seen so many workers disaffect from our economy today. They're looking for this agency. There's a deep desire um, for this um, autonomy. And finally, the third principle is how do we fairly balance risk between entrepreneurs, investors, and communities? And what and the key question is here, what does fair mean, right? And obviously as investors, we protect our own interests. Um, but we also, also take advantage of this unequal power relationship. We ask for 100% guarantee. Um, we ask for loan loss reserves. We ask for things in our term sheets that, um, in my view, might not be the structured commitment to neighbor love if we're trying to actually benefit this community and have them define the transformation we're looking for. So what, what is each party being asked to contribute in this enterprise, in this fund structure? Are they being fairly compensated for that? What would fair compensation mean? Um, in many standard venture capital term sheets, um, you see that the employee equity pool is typically expected to come out of the founder shares. So the founder has to give out how much they're going to give to their C-suite folks. Um, and rarely do they have enough equity to share with the large employees. What would it mean for an investor to take a portion of our equity in the standard term sheet and say, we're going to make this available as an equity pool um, for the workers that build this or other community members to be part of that. So the whole idea is... Um, we can believe in and actualize these things in different incremental ways and even in tra radical transformative ways through all of our investing today. Just to kind of double click on these concepts of risk and return, we think that Catholic social teaching offers an interesting set of questions to reflect on these concepts. Um, from a, on, on the topic of risk, we often define risk based on whether or not we think an investment will lose financial capital. Um, if it will, it's considered risky or it's Maybe sometimes we call it a concessionary investment. The challenge with that is that most financial returns are essentially predicated on non-financial non risks, such as risk to the climate or displacement in communities. So what if we were to kind of reverse that equation? What if, what if our investments were actually about um, 
this concept of buying livable future insurance. It's something that Marco Vangelesti, who you've heard about now, um, his business essential knowledge for transition, something he's emphasized that we could consider thinking about in our own personal investing activities. So we're actually investing in regenerating people and planet by having clean air and water, like that would be a livable future insurance investment. Um, so what we really wanna invite you to do is complexify kind of our notions of risk. What really is at risk? Risk to who, risk to what, to our communities, to future generations, to the planet. And from an asset management standpoint, when managing risks more holistically understood for our beneficiaries, what does benefit really mean? if we're kind of expressing that in a broader sense than just our financial returns. So what if benefit was about this broader integral ecology that Pope Francis calls us to contemplate that supports human life, um, addressing these non-financial aspects of risk? Returns, how do we think about returns in the same light? Um, you could say that climate risk is underpriced. You could say that socioeconomic risks are underpriced, especially given the social movements of our time. I think also when we think about market rate returns, we often call that as our benchmark. Does this kind of social impact investment have a market rate return? Um, I think what's implicit in that market rate return? You know, we should consider that um, the index funds that set market rate returns in some ways, uh, prisons, oil companies, factories. We talked earlier about how the oil company valuation of ExxonMobil has a market capitalization that is predicated on us producing the oil that we know will send us to that 2000 gigaton level. We only have a 200 gigaton budget. So it'll exceed. So this is, that's implicit in our market rate return seeking actions. Um, prisons, many folks have been alerted to the CCA core civics um, contracts with our government that mean that 90% of their prisons have to be occupied, right? And so it creates this incentive in our criminal justice system to, to criminalize black and brown bodies. And I think we realize the inherent disconnect with our values and there's been outcry along this and a pretty significant divestment movement from prisons because of that. Um, also factories and sweatshop labor, um, farmers, industrial chemicals and waste. There's a great article about a lawyer in DuPont that we'll link to in our resources um, about stories there. And the question is, is this what we want to benchmark to? These are all implicit in this market rate return metric. Is this consistent with participating in God's oikonomia, God's economy? These are hard questions, um, but I think it helps shake up a little bit of the conventional notion we have around what our market returns are. And finally, the third dimension here, risk return impact. If we're optimizing not just on risk return, we're also optimizing on impact. How do we incorporate those three dimensions into a portfolio allocation strategy? This is a great example from Morgan Simon on page 174 of her book, which she outlines a particular client and how they thought about three pieces of their portfolio. The first piece here is a high projected returns, low risk, medium impact. So these are well-established funds, um, perhaps more impact or more ESG than a traditional project, but not particularly transformative in terms of the broader impacts in the economy. So your aim with holding these funds would be to engage with those managers, engage with those asset holders that move them towards more transformative CST embodied principles. The second portion of your portfolio might be one that has really high impact and maybe more financial risk, but also high returns. And this category might include a first time private equity fund manager, perhaps even a person of color that implicitly feels more risky because they don't have the track record. Um, but they're very aligned with your social mandate, perhaps around employee ownership or some other level of impact. While these can be smaller funds, it can feel super missional to have a very meaningful allocation in this bucket established in your portfolio. Finally, 
we're more accustomed to thinking of these impact investments as low projected return. Um, and then this is maybe the bucket that we're most familiar with in affordable housing. Um, and these are kind of funds that have good track record of consistent below market, but reasonable returns and a unique impact story. And these types of investment can help you um, achieve your target impact while minimizing volatility. So still having meaningful impact, um, but maybe less risk than the second category. I also wanted to raise some interesting questions for reflection around this concept of fiduciary responsibility. We know that it is an important governing principle for how we manage assets. And there are certain acceptable interpretations of fiduciary responsibility sort of constrained by today's legal and regulatory system. The questions we want to offer are how might our formation or rootedness in Catholic social teaching inform our own behaviors and advocacy within this realm of fiduciary responsibility. So for example, if CST recognizes the importance of the person and the common good as the kind of twofold uh, final end that our economy must serve, how are we taking into account a sort of multi-stakeholder analysis of fiduciary responsibility, of our duty to, um, to our clients? So is serving the best interests of the individual client perhaps twinned with serving the best interests of the common good, given that they are inextricably woven together? Um, and of course, this offers some interesting invitations for us to consider ways we might align the interests of capital with uh, and, and capital markets with broader stakeholders. Um, and today, fiduciaries are generally speaking, speaking beholden to fairly narrow interpretations of what con constitutes best interests of the client. So this may be an interesting invitation to us to discernment, certainly with our clients, but also with the broader sort of policy and regulatory systems that we're operating in. A particular embodiment of these three principles that we outlined here um, might be taken a step further by listing questions you could use for diligence. So these 12 questions, so you're exploring a potential fund investment and the underlying um, holdings of that fund, you could say, are there most affected communities at the table? Is there shared leadership in these enterprises? Do the most directly affected community have participation in the upside? Is it just the investors or just the entrepreneurs or is there workers and other stakeholders that have participation in that? Um, you could also say, do producers, let's say we're talking about agricultural producers or others, gain value from a liquidity event? Um, is there transparency that's part of the dominant culture? Um, is there inclusive processes and fairness that are undercurrent of an organization? Um, do the practices listen and align to God's economy that includes all of creation's flourishing? Is there a sense of interdependence? Um, is there a culture of harm reduction? So these are questions that um, certain religious communities we've seen have begun to actualize using these as they diligence investments. And for us, this is maybe one part of an embodiment. These don't have to be something you apply to all of your investments. The question is, as we seek to more deeply embody a faith first approach, um, maybe allocating just one little part of some direct investment can help reacquaint us with what our money does. And these questions help guide us to have dialogues that can be richer than the conventional intermediated nature we have often. From a Catholic perspective, really responding to the needs of the world requires more than kind of our own individual acts of charity or impact. It does actually require engaging and building new kinds of institutions and adopting new policies and practices and really working to kind of transform the structures of society itself through our institutions. Um, so what we have done is we've reflected on 
this notion of how are we embodying CST within our institutions, our organizations, practices, and policies. And we've started to map out potential markers of embodiment on this journey. Things like, you know, training for board and staff and rewriting of documents and diligence questionnaires, evaluation criteria for advisors, portfolio construction practices. Um, and we offer this really as um, something we want to continue to co-create with you. Uh, this is a, a journey that we see as dynamic. It's unfolding. It's, of course, particular to your own institutional context, but we think it can really spark some interesting internal deliberation, reflection, conversations, your own sort of examination conscience to speak. One thing we've done is we've taken these markers and started to sketch out the contours of a scorecard. This is not something we've actually ranked organizations on yet. It's it's really an attempt, again, to offer practical tools that can be implemented within your organization to continue to invite you to on your own you know, journey of conversion as an organization. We just feel like it's a fun hypothetical exercise that if a group here decided coming out of this workshop, they wanted to kind of evaluate themselves and perhaps with others, what does it mean to have strength in our portfolio alignment or our ecosystem leadership? What does it have momentum or what is just, I'm just starting to clarify my values and beliefs in my IPS or whatever it might mean for you. We're trying to say you can have a one, two or three or four here. And how do we share some definitions of what those might mean? And that's what Elizabeth and I are intending to do. If we offer that a little bit in this workshop. So to really close us out, we feel like it's important to acknowledge that we're not meant to do this work alone. Um, that in fact, our Catholic tradition offers us to consider the importance of mutual discernment and accountability within community. It's part of the container we're hoping to offer through, the, through this workshop is a group of peers to whom you can continue to discern um, how you can do a more deep embodiment of these principles of Catholic social teaching within your own investment practice. We may not agree, always agree on the best ways to apply CST in our work. What's important is engaging is taking on this invitation to think about that translation and application in the world today to be in dialogue with those important questions in the world. Thank you.